We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration of formations of the secular by Talal Asad. We are uh, at the top of page five, a few lines down, but let's just start from the top of page five. For the media, who wants to read? For the media are not simply the means through which individuals simultaneously imagine their national community. The they mediate that imagination, construct the sensibilities that underpin it. When Taylor says that the modern state has to make citizenship the primary principle of identity, he refers to the way we must transcend the different identities built on class, gender, and religion, replacing conflicting perspectives by unifying experience. Okay, so we spoke about this before, right? Yeah. That part of the function of the media is, is not just to be the means through which uh, people imagine their society, they're the ones that are actually defining the imagination, right? So like the, the James Baldwin movie from, from, from last night, James Baldwin is saying that, um, that the black Americans are on the one hand the, the best thing for the American story, and on the other hand the worst thing. So they're the best thing because the American story is a white supremacist story, and so, so the black Americans will often be presented as people who who uh, give uh, America some diversity, but also uh, it shows the greatness of whiteness by the low position of black Americans, right? Now, on the other hand, they're the worst thing for the American story because they're, um, the experience of blackness in America ruins the entire American dream, right? Whether we talk about slavery, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, etc., right? And, and so in media, uh, part of the idea of media is to, is to define what is the... Uh, the, uh, the American story, so, and everyone buys into it. <clears throat> In an important sense, this transcend transcendent mediation is secularism. Secularism is not simply an intellectual answer to a question about enduring social peace and toleration. Okay, so that's another important point, that we often think of secularism as just the answer, right? How do we have peace? How do we have tolerance? Toleration, think of it as, as the, the active reform. And so he's saying, no, it's more than that. And it is? It is an enactment by which political medium, representation of citizenship, redefines and transcends particular and differing practices of the differentiating. self. Differentiating. Oh, differentiating practices of the self that are articulated through class, gender, and religion. In contrast, the process of mediation enacted in pre-modern societies includes ways in which the, states, the state mediates local identities without aiming at transcendence. So the key word there is transcendence. That the idea of secularism is to figure out something that transcends everyone's differences and binds everyone together. Okay. And if you actually look at how the Quran presents Islam, it is more like that. Like the way, the way in our society we imagine, <coughs> excuse me, something like the Tao, which is like it's a way of being and a way of thinking. Okay, going through the Quran, that's actually much more like what the Quran presents, right? Because you know we've spoken many times that the Quran has very few commands. We often imagine Islam the way you imagine Catholicism, which is this big, gigantic, structured thing with all these rules and dogmas and everything. But going through the Quran, it's nothing like that, right? And then if you look at the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, through the lens of the Qur'an, the life of the Prophet wasn't like that either, right? Mm -hmm. There's definitely halal and haram, definitely, right? Um, but even those boundaries are, for the most part, very wide. Okay? 
And, and so the idea of the secular is something that can transcend through it all and brings everyone together. Okay. We're saying the pre-modern state, which is pre-media or you know, pre-mass media, um, you know, it did not try to you know, bind everyone together. I think that's partially true. Uh, I think there were means that were used to bind, every, bind everyone together um, in some of the Islamic empires and the Roman empires and such, right? But nevertheless, nothing is close to what we have here. Okay, continue. <clears throat> so much for questions of space in modern secular society. The, alle the alleged absence of hierarchy and supposed dependence on horizontal solidarity. What about time? Here, too, the reality is more complex than Taylor's model suggests. The homogenous time of state bureaucracies and market dealings is, of course, central to the calculations of modern political economy. It allows speed and direction to be plotted with precision. But there are other temporalities, immediate and mediated, reversible and non-reversible, by which individuals in a heterogeneous society live and by which, therefore, their political responses are shaped. Okay, so one idea... One illusion of the secular society is a horizontal hierarchy, lateral hierarchy. Meaning, when you have a king, you have the king at the top. You have the ministers of the king. You have the other subjects, and it's literally top down. The theory of the secular democracy, the modern secular society, is that even the president is a civilian, is the first among equals. Right? That's very much even in the way we mythologize the president. So... Even though Donald Trump's language and rhetoric are, are just ridiculous, it still fits in the mold that the president is a civilian just like you and I, right? President Obama is just a civilian like you and I. Because if you think about it, if you remember back to the days of President Bush, Trump is sort of an exaggerated version of President Bush. All this crazy stuff President Bush used to say, um, you know, especially regarding terrorism, um, where he would sound like a cowboy and sound like a tough guy. Um, Donald Trump is more or less just an exaggerated version of that. Or New York version of it. You can say New York version, yeah, sure. And so, so the point being that, um, that there's still firsts among equals, meaning that everyone is more or less in a horizontal environment where everyone is more or less equal. But that's an illusion because every city has the rich pockets, which are even sometimes hard to find. You can drive right through Kenilworth and not even realize that, that you've gone through it. Um, um, and even though it's surrounded by, by you know, mashallah for them, very, very uh, uh, high-priced high homes. And, and that's the case for many, many parts of the city of Chicago, right? It's as though there's invisible doors preventing you from even finding those locations or finding how to get into those locations. That's part of the, uh, the, the illusion. He is suggesting that... <clears throat> You know, society being heterogeneous, people having different, uh, different personal identities and different priorities, it's more than just um, the couple things that, that people usually talk about, like religion, politics, economy, and such, that inform how they conduct themselves. Okay, continue. continue. In short, the assumption that liberal democracy ushers in a direct access society seems to me questionable. Okay, so that's straightforward. Liberal democracy gives, has the illusion that you have direct access to power. And he's saying, yeah, I don't think so. This forms of mediation... The forms. Oh, the forms of mediation characteristic of, characteristic of modern society certainly differ from medieval Christian and Islamic ones. 
But this is not a simple matter of abs- of the absence of religion in pub- in the public life of modern of the modern nation state. For even in the modern secular countries, the place of religion varies. Thus, although in France both the highly centralized state and its citizens are secular, in Britain the state is linked to the established church and its inhabitants are largely non-religious. And in America, the population is largely religious, but the federal state is secular. Okay, so that point's straightforward, right? There's different types of secularism. France, in theory, okay, there's no state religion. And in theory, people by and large have no religion, right? A lot of that, um, you know, with the rise of Muslims in France, that really challenges a lot of the ideas of France. So it's not just a question of physically, uh, what does France do with, it, with, with its Muslim uh, refugees and migrants? It's already failing on that issue. But then on top of that, how do we keep our French ideology uh, with all these religious people? Okay, it's failing on that too, but it was always failing because the laws that applies to Catholics have been different than the laws that applies to Muslims and, and by extension to Jews, mm. right? United States, uh, the government is secular. You might call it agnostic, but the people are very religious. The meaning compared to Europeans. What was the other example I gave? And the British are mostly non-religious people, but they do have a state religion. That's probably like Germany too. Germany has a state religion, but most of the people are mostly non-religious. Good. Okay, continue. Religion has always been publicly present in both Britain and America. Consequently, although the secularism of these countries have much in common, the mediating character of the modern imaginary in each of them differs significantly. The notion of toleration between religiously defined groups is differently inflected in each. Okay, same point. There is a different sense of participation in the nation and access to the state amongst religious minorities in the three countries. Okay, so that's also another key point. Not only is the secularism different, the access is also different, especially for religious minorities. Right. What do you access to what? Like so, to, for example, to like practice by, by virtue of the fact that we're Muslim, uh, there's a lot of doors open for us that are not open for a whole lot of people, it's specifically in this moment in 2017. Right? I mean, the the interactions I've had with people at very high levels in society, uh, 100% of the fact has to do with the fact that I'm Muslim. Mm-hmm. Right? That other people, a common Catholic, may not have access to. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times we don't see it. Uh, but definitely, I mean, the amount of people, amount of my peers who've gone to the White House even for multiple times um, compared to the other 300 million people in the country, you know, there's a lot of doors open for us right now um, that I suspect are not nearly as open for people in Germany, people, Muslims in Germany, Muslims in France, mm-hmm. right, but are open for Muslims in Britain. And a lot of that has to do with just the sheer number of Muslims in London, for example. I mean, they have a Muslim mayor now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So access here is basically access to power, access to institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does the idea of an overlap, overlapping consensus do for the doctrine of secularism? <coughs> in a religiously diverse society, Taylor claims, it allows people to have different, even mutually exclusive, reasons for subscribing to the independent secular ethic. For example... The right to life may be justified by secular or religious beliefs, and the latter may come in several varieties that belong to different traditions. This means that the political disagreements will be continuous, incapable of being authoritatively resolved, and that, this temp- and that temporary resolutions will have to depend on negotiated compromise. But given that there will be quarrels about 
what is to count as core political principles and as background justifications? How will they re- how will they be resolved? Okay, so so two points here. The foremost, the forward, the the apparent point is that okay, uh, I'm religious in a secular society, uh, which means my personal religious law might contradict the secular law of the society, and somehow I can still manage to justify it. So a common case that you find in Muslim conversations these days is gay marriage, marriage equality that the over overwhelming majority of Muslims are of the belief that the two people of the same sex, same gender cannot marry, right? But suppose in your state, um, two people of the same gender can marry, okay? So that's a contradiction. Uh, but is it a contradiction if I say, yeah, it's okay from the state perspective, right? That either I support it or I don't oppose it, does that contradict my beliefs? So that becomes one of the questions. But then uh, beneath uh, all of this is that is there a way to, to establish authority for people's actual justifications behind the scenes? Okay. I mean, at first it sounds very, very abstract, but the basic question that's being raised is where is authority? Yeah. Right? Because, like, uh, at least, like, when I was in high school, and even for most of Obama's term, like, with gay marriage specifically, like, it was seen... Uh, I mean, it was it was there was a large part of the co- portion of the country like sort of opposed it, right? Like yeah. even the president couldn't openly come out yeah. in support of it, and like, uh, but it was hard to find uh, a reason as to why, mm-hmm. right? Like an American quote unquote reason, like a mm-hmm. secular reason. Like you could, like yeah, the far right might be like, well, th- these are this is traditional marriage, or these are quote unquote our values, mm-hmm. but there's not like uh, underpinning legal authority for them to like make that argument. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like, uh, yeah. So that is interesting. Like, you, who, what has the say? Like, what, like, how do you argue? How, do, how do you argue your point in a place that's like secular, mm-hmm. right? Using like, yeah. So now take it a step further. Um, take, for example, the Muslim community. Look at our resources. Uh, look at uh, our human resources. And then look at the state's resources. How hard is it for the state to completely take over Islam in America? A uh, piece of cake without anyone even noticing. That if the state wanted to form a version of Islam that the state prefers, right down to fatwas and everything, um, and then quietly train people who themselves may not even be realize, realize they're being trained, and put in you know, $100 million into it, a piece of cake, and they can completely rapidly transform Islam in America to something that people don't even realize is going on and is completely in line with the state. Not at all hard. Right. Yeah? What makes you think it hasn't already yet? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean... It could be him. Yeah. But that's the, the, that's the point, that the state has the authority. Here, he, uh, Nick, uh, Taylor says, by pers- persuasion and negotiation... Uh, I'm saying it can happen by way of coercion. Well, let's see what else he says. Okay. Taylor answers by persuasion and negotiation. There is certainly a generous impulse behind this answer, but the nation state is not a generous agent, exactly. and its law does not deal in persuasion. Consider what happens when the parties to dispute are unwilling to compromise on what for them is a matter of principle, a principle that articulates action and being not a principle that is justifiable by statements of belief. 
If citizens are not reasoned around in a matter deemed nationally important by the government and the majority that supports it, the threat of legal action and the violence this implies may be used. In that situation, negotiation simply amounts to the exchange of unequal concessions in situations where the weaker party has no choice. What happens, the citizen asks, to the principles of equality and liberty in the modern secular, secular imaginary when they are subjected to the necessities of the law? It emerges then that although she can choose her happiness, she may not, she may not identify her harm. So uh, it's the same basic point, that you have these wonderful ideas of equality and liberty, but the law is coercive, and so the law can be passed to force you to do whatever it wants. And in your imagination, it's still equality and liberty. It's like the three-fifths rule. Like, it's like the law can just be written against you, yeah. so to speak. But we're all equal under the law. Yeah, it's just exactly. Like, yeah. It's just not going to be to your advantage. Uh -huh. okay. I mean, uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, these inalienable rights that all men are created equal. When you know it did not include women, it did not include black Americans, white or, or male or female, right? Uh, may or may not have even included foreigners. Um, and definitely don't include Native Americans, right? Yeah. That gets in. That's, so the Declaration of Independence in one way is the American imagination. The Constitution is the American law. The Constitution is coercion. Right? Mm -hmm. The Amer Declaration of Independence is we're not part of you. I mean, most of the Declaration of Independence, which is the stuff we don't read, is the whole list of complaints against the king. Right? But it is, is still essentially like a cornerstone statement of the American imagination. Or to put it another way, when the state attempts to forcibly establish and defend core political principles, when its courts impose a particular distinction between core principles and background justifications, for the, for the law all, always works through violence. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. This may add... So, yeah. violence doesn't necessarily mean bloodshed. Mm -hmm. Violence is coercion against the will, or whether you have the will to follow or not. It is coercion. Yeah. This may add to cumulative disaffection. Can secularism then guarantee peace it allegedly ensured in Euro-America's early history by shifting the violence of religious wars into the violence of national and colonial wars? Mm -hmm. The difficulty with secularism is that as a doctrine of war and peace in the world that is... <coughs> is oh, it's not that it is. The difficulty with secularism as a doctrine of war and peace in the world that is not that it is... European and therefore alien to non-West, but that it is closely connected with the rise of system, uh, rise of a system of capitalist nation states, mutually suspicious and grossly unequal in power and prosperity, each possessing a collective personality that is differently mediated and therefore differently <clears throat> guaranteed and threatened. Okay, so one issue that we said is that there's different types of secularisms. There's also different types of capitalisms. But the big difference in the different types of capitalisms, because they're all part of the same system, is things are not equal in terms of power, which we all know, right? Look at how much physical raw power the United States has versus Greece, right? And, and so there's the idea of secularism in a society, then there's global secularism, and, and so one problem with secularism in society is that at the end of the day, the authority is in the state, okay? and there will always be a, co a coercive authority. But when you trans when you when you go across um, uh, states, then things get a lot more complicated because you have 
just inequality from state to state to state to state, right? I mean, California alone probably has a higher GDP than, than a number of the European states. I think yeah. it's like fourth or fifth, seventh. It's really huge. No, it, it, it got up again. Okay. Anyways, yeah. let's continue. Thus, a number of historians have noted the tendency of spokespersons of the American nation, a tendency that has dramatically resurfaced since the September 11th tragedy, to define it as good in opposition to its evil enemies at home and abroad. Okay, so that is very straightforward, right? We are good, they are evil. It turns it into moral language, as opposed to financial interests, political interests, stability interests. We are good, they are evil. Okay, And that is a very, very serious uh, 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 approach in the sense that when you frame someone as evil, that's already not just dehumanizing them, it's saying they're out to kill you. Right. It is an outlook rooted in two distinctive American traditions, says Eric Foner, a historian at Columbia University. The country's religious roots and its continuing high level of religious faith make Americans more likely to see enemies not just as, not just as opponents, but as evil. Linked to this belief is that America is the world's last best hope of liberty, so that those who oppose America become enemies of freedom. So yeah, we're all familiar with this, right? The key point I want to emphasize is that we're the last best hope. If we don't do it, it all, it all falls apart. So it frames us not just as morally good, it frames us as the heroes. It's the bulwark. Sorry? It's the bulwark. Sort yeah, of. I'd even say the martyrs, mm -hmm. that we're going to give everything for this. And that's why, that's part of the whole, you know, uh, uh, marketing for soldiers. Yeah. Mm. Included in this pattern, these historians tell us, is the tendency to denounce public dissent as treason and to subject various immigrant groups to legalized suppression. Wow, look at how old this book is. It sounds like it's talking about it right now. Yeah. The historians have traced this recurring pattern of American nationalism, where internal difference, especially when it is identified as foreign, becomes the focus of intolerance. From the end of the 18th century, that is, from the foundation of the Republic to the present, it is to be understood that in relation to, to its religious origins, is it to be understood in relation to its religious origins. But in the 20th century, the political rhetoric and repressive measures have been directed at real and imagined secular opponents. Okay, what do you think about imagined secular opponents? So real secular opponents would be someone who wants to establish a religious order. What would be an imagined secular opponent? Someone who you're accusing of trying to establish a religious, religious order. Creeping Sharia. Right. Yeah that they might not even think about it, but you have decided that this is what they are trying to do. And it gets so far as passing legislation about it. Yeah. Coercively trying to stop people from doing something they're not even trying to do. Yeah. Regardless of the religious roots and the contemporary religiosity that historians invoke in explanation of this pattern, America has, as Taylor rightly observes, a model, a model secular constitution. My point is that whatever the excuse, whatever the cause of the related explosions repeated. of oh, repeated explosions of intolerance in American history, however understandable they may be, they are entirely compatible, <coughs> indeed intertwined with secularism, in a highly modern society. Okay, so 
this is a point to think about, that we often speak of religion being violent or a lot of the violence of the world being caused by religion. The part we don't say is a lot of the violence of the world is prevented by religion, right? That in a secular society, you don't have those, because it's just this theory of nothingness, uh, you don't have things stopping uh, violence and explosions of intolerance, right? And so it fits. So uh, you still have the freedom to be intolerant. That's still validly secular because you're not trying to impose religion. Do you, is there also, because I always hear, like, especially growing up, like, religion causes this or violence or wars or whatever. Yeah. Is a large part of that, too, like, because at least until very recently in the Western tradition, like, you had these, I mean, these really long wars in Europe, yeah. right, between Catholics. And Absolutely. It's like the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, or Protestants versus Protestants, yeah. Right. So you had these, these, uh, uh -huh. these wars and, like, and not to say there wasn't violence in, in the Islamic tradition, uh -huh. but it doesn't seem as enam like uh, as rooted in faith as it might yeah. be in like. I mean, it's else. it's like, like you have you have the the Reformation, with the rise of what we today call the Protestants, you know, or the Reformed tradition, and then you have the rise of the nation states, that each and every one of them is affiliated with a church, and then they go to war against each other, right. And because of the fact that they're going to war against each other, that then inspires the Enlightenment, which is basically saying we don't need religion to lead a better life, lead a better life, because look at what religion's done. Look at what a reformation of Christianity has done. It's caused more bloodshed, right? So you remove all the dogma from Christianity, and it's saying that, okay, it's even more bloodshed now. And so the Enlightenment is basically trying to come up with ideas and philosophies to lead a better life in response to all that. And the Enlightenment then leads to the American and French Revolution. Thus, it seems to me there has been scarcely any sustained public debate on the significance of, of the September 11th trage tragedy for a superpower-dominated world. On the whole, the media have confined themselves to two kinds of questions. No, two kinds of questions. On the one hand, the requirements of national security and the danger to civil liberties of the war on terror, and on the other, the responsibility of Islam as a religion and Arabs as a people for acts of terror. A number of thoughtful articles on the September trage tragedy have been published, but they do not appear to have, been, to have affected the dominant intellectual discourse. So there isn't much dominant intellectual discourse except we are good, they are evil. But, I mean, in this, you know, who knows, maybe I'll, I feel like talking about this soon, but um, <clears throat> we still frame September 11th as a, theo a theological atrocity, okay? Um, no one really talks about the fact that, okay, if America didn't have American foreign policy, then 9-11 probably would not have happened, right? Ron Paul did for a while, um, but that's a complete taboo topic. Likewise, it's impossible still to have a true topic about race. <laughs> This absence of public debate in a liberal democratic society must be explained in terms of mediating representations that define its national personality and identify the discourses that seem to threaten it. Another instructive example is India, a country that has, sec that has a secular constitution and an outstanding record as a functioning liberal democracy, perhaps the most representative in the third world. Impressive. Oh, impressive in the third world. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> 
And yet in India, communal riots, that is between Hindus and various minorities, Muslim, Christian, and untouchable, have occurred frequently ever since independence in 1947. Bartha. As, <laughs> as Bartha Chatterjee? Yeah. I'm proud of myself. And others have pointed out the publicly recognizable personality of the nation is strongly mediated by representations of a reconstituted high caste Hinduism. And those who do not fit into that personality are inevitably defined as religious minorities. So part of the reason this works is that Chatterjee basically says that, that Hinduism has been reconfigured in relationship with the state and it becomes almost that the, uh, the uh, overall core default of India is high caste Hindus. Mm. Yeah. Everyone else who doesn't fit, they're a minority. This has often placed religious minorities in a defensive position. A secular state does not guarantee toleration. It puts to, into play different structures and ambition of ambition and fear. Wait, what? The law never seeks to eliminate violence since its object is always to regulate violence. Yeah, so so it is saying that violence violence is innately part of the experience, the human experience. Violence is innately part of the experience of the state, and so the point of the nation-state is to regulate violence, and the narrative ultimately is a narrative of ambition and fear, right? Ambition in the sense of look what you can accomplish, fear is look what happens if you fail. If you fail, you go to jail, right? And otherwise you could be a billionaire. Again, that's very much part of the American narrative. Okay, let's stop right here. Uh, this is page 8, Roman number 2. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين